Church, it is good to see you. Y'all can go ahead and have a seat. Last week, if you remember, uh, we got the privilege of having a five-course meal. We looked at a single verse with five promises that God is with us, that He's our God, that He will help us, that He will strengthen us, um, that He will uphold us by His righteous right hand. And this morning, you get a little bit uh, less of a course of your meal. We're just going to have one course this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Psalm 42 and 43. And so it, it's just one promise this morning, but it is a really sweet promise. And it's repeated three times in case you miss it the first time or the second time, it'll be there again. And the promise this morning is that we will again praise God. In this moment, in our church, there's a lot of suffering. It seems like in every quarter of the church, in every corner, there is places where there's deep suffering. And I, I don't mean suffering like I had a bad day today, but suffering over an extended period of time that has some really deep pain and sorrow to it. It's a, a strange thing that suffering in the life of a community seems to come in waves. So I've, I've been here at Miller Heights since 2010 is when I uh, joined this church. And I naively at that point assumed that suffering was something that was kind of slow and steady in the life of a community, almost like kind of a, a dripping faucet. Drip, drip, drip. But one of the things that I've noticed and I've learned is that that doesn't tend to be the way that suffering works in a body. It tends to be a lot more like rain in Texas, right? We either have none or we have tornadoes. There's not a whole lot of in-between. And that seems to be the way that suffering is in the life of the church. And so as far as I know, there's a lot of suffering right now, and, and just the things that I know of is a bit daunting, and I'm positive that there's suffering among us that I don't know of at this point. And so the question I think before us, before some of you in this moment, before all of us at some moment, is what do we do with despair? What do we do with deep, lasting sorrow? It seems to me that our world gives us two options. One option is to minimize it. This tends to come along with language like suck it up, buttercup, rub some dirt on it. This is, uh, maybe if you've watched, spent your time watching some westerns, this is kind of the, the lone ranger who carries things on his own and gets things done. Suck it up, get over it minimize deep-seated suffering, pain, grief, and sorrow. That, that's one option. The other option that I think our culture provides us is to idolize it. It's to let your suffering become who you are. Hi, my name is Landon, and I'm really grieved. But neither of these is actually helpful, right? Right? Like the first option isn't helpful because it pretends that it's nothing. And you know this to be true. 
darkness apart from light only gets darker. If you go this route, you'll find yourself to be callous eventually, hard-hearted, unable to sympathize, because after all, you have pressed your despair and your suffering down and you've moved on, so why can't others do the same? If we go that route, we become callous, unhelpful, uncompassionate people, and we pass that along to others, who then become callous and uncompassionate. The other option, though, isn't helpful either, because anytime we set pain up as an identity marker, it becomes an idol. And it's not long before we find that we are made more in the image of our pain than we are in the image of our God. And the question of who you are apart from your grief becomes an unanswerable question. So the question that I want to ask us this morning is what do we do with our deep-seated pain and suffering? We're going to be looking at Psalm 42 and 43. Um, As you go ahead and turn in your Bibles there, I want to explain to you why we've paired these two together uh, this morning, and then I want to pray for us, and we will read. So, Psalm 42 and 43, I think, belong tightly together, and to split them apart would cause us some problems. So if you notice, Psalm 42 has a title at the top. We, we tend to skip over those. To the choir master, a, mask, a maskal of the sons of Korah. But if you look over at Psalm 43, there's no title. I think that's because these two belong tightly Together, You'll also notice the same problem shows up in both psalms. So look at Psalm 42.9. The psalmist says, I say to God, my rock, this God is viewed as the one who protects, who shelters, who keeps safe. The psalmist says, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And then if you look down at Psalm 43, verse 2, the same thing appears. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. You're my rock. Why have you rejected me? And then the most important reason I want to keep these two psalms together for us this morning is there's a repetition of three things, a question, a command, and a promise. So look at verse 42.5, 42.11, and 43.5. It's the same question, the same command and the same promise that runs through all, through both of these two psalms. So we're going to keep these two together. We're going to read it in just a moment. Let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we will read. God, you are the one who is our rock. You are our hope. You are our delight. And it is in you that we can find refuge. And so I pray that you would help us this morning to grow better at grieving and suffering and being in pain. I pray that you would do that for ourselves, that we might respond to these things better. And I pray that you would do that so that we might be better, more helpful 
friends and church members to those around us. So teach us this morning, we pray. We need you to do it because we have nowhere else to turn. So show up, teach us, and mold us, we pray. Amen. Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my rock. I thank God my rock. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. We're used to receiving recommendations, advice from people who've kind of figured it out, right? When you want to learn how to make money, we're used to going to someone who's made money. When we want to get well, we're used to going to someone who is well. But there's something unique about this psalm, both of these psalms. These psalms emerge from the pit of despair. Did you notice just how miserable this psalmist is? Like, at every level possible, things are broken. The psalmist 
is abandoned by God. He's made God his rock, his refuge. And what does he say? My God, you've forgotten me. You've rejected me. He's mocked by evil people who ask him, where is your God? He's in turmoil within himself. His food, day and night, he says, has been his tears. He's desiring, he says, for God. My soul thirsts for God like a deer pants for flowing streams. Did you notice this? He talks about God in the third person instead of the second. He says he and him instead of you. Why does he do that? Well, it seems the psalmist is so depressed that he can't bear to lift up his face and speak directly to God, and instead he has to speak about God. Maybe you've been there. Psalms of lament, psalms that are filled with sorrow and grief and hurt and ache, aren't uncommon in the book of Psalms. It's one of the beautiful things about the psalms. But most of the time... In the book of Psalms, when you read a psalm that's filled with lament, the vision seems to be the psalmist goes down this long winding path in pain and suffering and sorrow. But by the end of that journey, the psalmist emerges out the other side and has found a way to turn his lament into praise. But did you notice? This psalm doesn't make it. He ends at roughly the same place he'd begun. Looking forward to a future day when he might be able to one day praise God again. There's no searching for why in this psalm. There's simply an acknowledgement of what is. And what is, isn't wanted. These psalms, they don't pretend that life is fine. They don't minimize the pain. But they also don't assume that the present is permanent. So they neither minimize it nor idolize it. And church, make no mistake. You, I, we, we need these psalms. Right? Some of you are in deep despair. You hurt. And you need to hear the psalmist's words. Some of you feel all right. But one day you won't. Because despair comes for all of us. And you need to prepare yourself to face that faithfully. So the question I want to put before us as we look at these two psalms is what do we do in these moments of deep despair? Do we minimize it? Do we idolize it? Or do we do something else? Well, I want you to notice what the psalmist does. Three times 
He asks a question. Verse, chapter 42, verse 5, chapter 42, verse 11, and chapter 43, verse 5. He asks the question, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? And he gives his soul a command. He says, hope in God. And then he offers a promise to his soul. For I shall again praise him. Now, If I'm, if I'm honest, the first read-through of this is a little bit difficult. Think about the question he asks. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Doesn't that sound like a foolish and insensitive question? Why are you cast down? Uh, maybe because my God, my rock, has rejected me, has forgotten me. Maybe because tears have been my food all day and all night for days beyond number. Maybe because it's the wicked around me who seem to be prevailing and who taunt me, asking me where my God is. Why am I cast down? How dare you ask that? It feels like an insensitive, a callous question. And the command? Hope in God? Doesn't the psalmist say he's tried that? Who is God? My rock, my refuge, my safe place, my protector, my savior. And what has this God done? The psalmist says he's forgotten him. He's rejected him. What kind of sense does a command to hope in this God make? And so it feels like a callous question. It feels like an insensitive command And doesn't the promise sound a touch naive and detached? After night and day of tears, can you believe that you will one day praise Him again? After being rejected, do you want to? And so the psalmist asks this question, gives this command, and gives this promise, and at least at a first blush, none of these seem particularly helpful. Maybe you've been there as well. But there's a key that unlocks this door, that turns everything on its head, that changes the way we hear this. And the key is this. The psalmist knows, and you know, the faithful God has not changed. So notice what the psalmist does. This is, this is good. Look down in your Bibles at chapter 42, and look at verse 4. So verse 3, remember he's eating, he's living on his tears, He's mocked by others who ask him where his God is. And what is the task that he sets himself to? He remembers. He remembers worshiping God. He remembers gathering together with God's people and praising God. 
You see, Christian, one of the most important tasks you have is to remember. That's one of the goals we have when we gather together is to remind one another of who our God is and what he has done because sometimes our situation is so bad that we can't see it. So he does that in 42 verse 4. Look down just a little bit farther at verse 5. My soul is cast down within me. So what does he do? Therefore, I remember. Christian, remember. Remember. But then look what else he does. Look over at chapter 43. Look at verse 4. So in verse 3, he asks God to send out his light and his truth. And he says in verse 4, when that happens, notice what he will do. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you. So the psalmist remembers and the psalmist anticipates. He knows what is coming and he looks forward to it even if he can't see it right now. This is something that we too must do. We need to remember the pleasantness of worship. So if you're in a good place right now, let me encourage you, lodge it in your mind. Because one day you find you just may need it. Remember is something we must get good at. And anticipating is something we must also get better at. Those who look forward to a faithful God find things copable, maybe not ideal, but bearable in the present. This is, this is different from both minimizing and idolizing our sorrows. It recognizes that they're real, that they're deep, that they are problematic, but it infuses it with hope. It says neither that they're nothing nor that they are everything. It's an active approach to your suffering rather than a passive. So with that in mind, let's look back at these uh, promise, this promise that the psalmist gives to his soul. So he asks his soul, why are you cast down? Indeed, there are many reasons his soul is cast down. But none of those reasons have the permanence of God. All of those reasons are changeable and God is not. And so what first appears to be a callous, insensitive question is actually a gentle and sensible question. Ask your soul, why are you cast down? And you ask that question not because you don't know some reasons to be cast down, but because you know a better reason to not be cast down. Ask one another this question. Why are you cast down? Yes, life is hard, but God is good. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, he asks. Then he commands. He says, hope in God. 
And what seemed like an unbearable command is now the only responsible command. You have found, O soul, that there is nothing else you can hope in. Everything else is bankrupt, but your God is not. And whether you can see it right now or whether you can't, that doesn't affect what is. And your God is good, and He is sovereign, and He works all things together for your good. And so, soul, you would do well to hope in that God. Why are you cast down? Hope in God. And then notice how the naive, detached promise actually becomes medicine to his languished soul. He says, for I shall again praise him. He does this with confidence that what's currently third person, him, will become second person, you. That there's coming a day when he'll be able to lift his eyes up off the floor and see his God face to face and worship him. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow or the next day, but one day. One day, the psalmist says, I will again praise him. The psalmist has no idea when that day is, but he does know it is coming. I want you to notice, kind of lastly in all of this, there's a really beautiful paradox that happens in this. And so uh, the psalmist says he will again praise God. But what does this mean other than that the psalmist believes that he currently isn't praising God? Did you catch that? In the psalmist, what looks like a praise is actually a confession that I'm not right now. One day I will, the psalmist says. Again, perhaps you've been there. I can remember on more than one occasion being overwhelmed with grief and frustration and hurt to the degree that nothing in my mind about what I knew about God had changed. I still knew who He was. I still believed all of it. But I found myself unable to speak those praises that I knew to be true. And one of the things, the thing, that was most helpful in those moments was gathering together with you. Because what I found was what I knew that should be said that I wasn't able to say, I could hear you say and sing in my place. It's one of the beauties of gathering in a body. No matter where we are at, collectively together, we're still able to praise God. And there's something that shifts in your mind when you hear someone offer the praises that you want to but aren't able to. And so let me encourage you. At your deepest darkness, whenever that is, be present with God's people. You need it more then than ever. Here's something marvelous about these two psalms. I think we all know what a paradox means. It means something that 
doesn't sound like it can possibly be true, but then we find out that our view of reality was actually a little too shrunken, and it is true. So uh, there is one God, and he exists eternally in three persons. That doesn't make any sense. That can't be true. Oh, wait, we're small, finite creatures. Or, or Paul says, when I am weak, what? Then I'm strong. And we go, hmm, that doesn't make any sense. Until we realize that our understanding of what weakness is is actually too small. And that vision, that understanding needs to be exploded. And in our weakness, God shows up and we find a strength that we didn't know existed. Well, notice what's going on in this psalm. These psalms have been a hymn book for the saints for thousands of years. By the psalm's very nature, they're communal, collective, us together rather than individuals. So the primary purpose of the Psalms isn't for you to sit by yourself early in the morning with a cup of coffee. And that's a great thing to do. But the primary purpose of the Psalms is for God's people to sing and read together. And so for generation after generation, these Psalms, including Psalm 42 and 43, have been read and sung together. And I want you to notice one other thing here. Look at the very top of Psalm 42. This is a line that we typically skip over. To the choir master, a masculine, nobody really knows what that word means, of the sons of Korah. Here's what's interesting. Multiple people wrote this psalm. This was a collectively written psalm by people in grief. And so when you take these two pieces together, here's what I want you to see. The psalms are sung by the saints for generation after generation after generation. These psalms were written by a group of people together. Here's the beautiful paradox. This psalmist's not praise, one day I'll praise him again, but right now I'm not, what he declares as a not praise has served as the saints' praise for thousands of years. You see that? What on its face is not praise serves as praise for generation after generation after generation. Here's why. Our hopeful suffering is transformed by God into praise that others can use. You see that? The psalmist says he's not praising right now. But today, thousands of years later, you and I are sitting here looking at Psalm 42, 43, and using it as a praise to our God. And so church, let me call you. Neither minimize your suffering, nor idolize it. Instead, infuse it with hope. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul? Hope in God. Why? For I shall again praise His name. Let's do that. Join me in prayer. Lord, 
You are the God who does not change. We remember that you have been faithful. And so we believe that you will be faithful. You are the one who comforts us in our affliction. And you've called us to do that as well. So I pray that you would make us a compassionate, a faithful, a persistent, a devoted people who care well for one another. Teach us to endure despair and sorrow in a way that reflects good of you. And so even when we can't see how good might be present, even when we can't see how you can work something out for our good, we pray that you would give us the faith to believe that because we've seen you be faithful in the past. So help our souls cling tightly to the promise that we will again praise you. We look forward to the day when all things are made new and when tears are no more. Help us to persevere to that end, we pray. Amen. And let's stand again.